0: From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at Greenbiz Headquarters at 350 Frank Ogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, is synthetic biology sustainable? Overdriving your headlights on climate risk, a climate action moonshot and a clear-cut case for business action on deforestation. We're branching out this week on 350. It's July 26, 2019. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me, as she always does so nicely from... Midland Park, New Jersey is GreenBiz editorial director Heather Clancy.
1: Welcome back, Heather. Greetings, Joel. I'm glad to be back. Hope you, you are well.
0: I'm doing great. You were off last week in, uh, I want to say Manitoba,
1: Manitoba, Winnipeg, where my family is uh, is domiciled. My father's family is uh, living lives up there, and I was visiting. And believe it or not, it was super wa- warm. <laughs> it was hot. The great, white, the great white north was hot last week.
0: Yeah, well, it's as as we speak, uh, as, as we're having this conversation, uh, it's 42 degrees Celsius in Paris, which I think translates to something like 517. No, it's actually 107 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, it's 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 kind of amazing. Of course, uh, you probably missed uh, some of that really hot stuff in the New York uh, area uh, when you were gone, and yeah, it's a uh, uh, long, another long, hot summer.
1: another long hot summer, yeah, the the weather came through while I was uh, away, and now it is a lovely seventy five ish so yep, yep yep here, yep. here too
0: in in Oakland, California. um and uh, are, are you are you a Canadian citizen?
1: I am a dual citizen. I am a dual citizen, yep, isn't that amazing? I, i'm I'm excited. Well, <laughs> about I think, that every once in a while. yeah,
0: <laughs> I <laughs> think some people would consider you lucky, if not precious. Uh, <laughs> That you my have,
1: paperwork in order. That's that, why I always ask. Yeah, yeah that you have, uh, <laughs> what
0: do you call it, uh, options.
1: <laughs> it's quite interesting, I have to say, and I, I don't want to make this a political discussion, but I have all sorts of questions from my cousins uh, about um, our administration. And so they, they're very intrigued and dismayed um, by what's going on south of, uh, south of the border. Uh, but actually, at the same time, my, my, uh, I have a lot of uh, relatives in Alberta, which of course is a big uh, energy uh, province, and, and my brother and uh, sister-in-law are Houston, uh, and they're both involved in the uh, the fossil fuels industry. So, quite quite an intriguing uh, b- b- array of views, <laughs> shall we say? Yeah. yeah? On the energy world.
0: Well, speaking of the energy world and fossil fuels, uh, you're also spending a good amount of time back uh, stateside uh, around Verge. What's what's the latest? What are you excited about?
1: I'm excited because I just nailed down the first panelist for a session I'm doing on uh, how blockchain and artificial intelligence enable companies to better manage their energy um portfolio, if you will. So and but not just renewables, but 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 everything and in, in sort of energy efficiency. So I'm excited that uh just nailed down someone for that session starting to to hunker down and get the speakers uh speakers confirmed. And I know that my colleagues are doing that. there's a lot of uh people already confirmed and, and I believe the uh one of our rate expires today, our Friday yep. the twenty sixth. So if you're listening on the twenty sixth, get your Get your discount. Got a lot of um, great sessions uh, emerging for Verge this year, and, and so I'm excited to be participating in that. So, Joel, I know you're traveling next week. Tell me a little bit about where you're going and why.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's uh, going to be an interesting week. Um, so I'm going to be in L.A. Uh, for a few days, and um, wearing this other hat that I sometimes don once every 5 or 10 or 20 years uh, that relates to the oral history of the Woodstock Music and Arts Festival of 1969 that I produced in 1989 for the 20th anniversary and which keeps rearing its head every uh, every once in a while and this year this uh, next month actually August is the 50th anniversary of Woodstock as you may know and um, so there's been a lot of media. I think we already may have talked about the uh, PBS uh, documentary that uh, aired in theaters in in May and June, called Woodstock: Three Days That Defined a Generation. That's going to air on on TV broadcast, uh, I, I believe, in in uh, in August. And then there's also a CNN documentary coming up, and I'm in both of those. But I'll be in LA because it'll be part of the Television Critics Association press tour where PBS uh, and the, the American Experience, which is a, a series that they do, will be showcasing the uh, movie, of which I am a consulting producer, in front of the press. So they will be in a panel with uh, the director of the uh, of the documentary, Barrett Goodman, uh, one of the producers of Woodstock itself, Who's tragically also named Joel, Joel mm-hmm. Rosenman, and um, and so we'll be uh, talking to the press and pitching that uh, documentary. So, kind of different. Um, it'll it'll all go away after August, uh, middle of August, after the 50th anniversary passes and the press will move on to something else maybe for another 10 years or maybe after 50 that's kind of it until 75 or 100 i don't know how many more anniversaries woodstock even wants to commemorate but mm-hmm. we'll see
1: mm-hmm. we'll see we'll see well we'll miss you next week and uh, we will be you'll be uh, ably replaced by uh, katie thernbacher next week as the co-host so I'm just going to plug that right now. Yeah. And, uh, but I'll miss you. No I'll
0: way. miss you. I'll be back after that. So, around for the rest of the summer. But let's go back to the week in review. Well, let's start off this week talking about synthetic biology, SynBio, as it's sometimes called. Uh, Meg Wilcox wrote a great piece, a Green GreenBiz contributor wrote a really interesting piece called Just How Sustainable Is That SynBio Startup? Now, synthetic biology is this mashup of of biology and engineering and design and chemistry that's looking to uh, potentially revolutionize agriculture, energy production, water filtration, a whole bunch of uh, other resource-intensive industrial processes, And we wrote about this in the State of Green Business report in 2018. But what Meg's writing about here is that questions remain about the unintended consequences of synthetic biology, as well as consumer attitudes towards goods made with altered genes, uh, aka GMO, or genetically modified Mm -hmm. organisms. And the big question, I think, is what's the difference between synthetic biology and, let's say, GMO corn?
1: this is an intriguing story for me. And I, there were a couple of things that, that popped out, um, as, as particularly concerning, but also intriguing, um, which I did, I did not know. I didn't, I hadn't thought about before. One of them was the, the notion that the, um, the, the thing, the genes and or the bacteria or whatever you're altering actually reverts back to wild. So you modify these bacteria, uh, for example, um, in, uh, you know, something like a milk pasteurization process. And that when they're not in the lab they they could go back to to the, the the traits that they they normally had so that was that's one of the things I think we don't know enough about and how how that will react over over gene generations you know it's sort of the Darwinian like what happens to things in in nature and so forth so that's one thing that I, I hadn't really thought about and the other thing that I that I hadn't thought about was just sort of the the notion of um, are you taking away from from a, a a, a human. Um, so like, for example, if you use synthetic vanilla, are you, d- d- you know, depriving farmers of their livelihood, um, especially when they're super vulnerable from climate change anyway? So I think that's something that the people, companies and people are starting to think about is if you use a genetically uh, engineered ingredient, um, what what's the human consequences, not just for, you know, human health, but human livelihoods.
0: Yeah. And, and, and of course with GMO corn and some of its other, some of the other uh, GMO crops, there's issues around biodiversity loss and soil health, water pollution and other things. But the big difference here, because, and I think one of the fears here is that we're tarring uh, both synthetic biology and, and GMO farming with the same brush um, is that there's a, a, I think a difference, and this is, partly my opinion, but partly based on fact of what happens in an open field, like a crop grown outside, or in a closed environment in a steel tank, which is where most synthetic biologies take place uh, within a lab, nothing gets out, and often, in fact, uh, the the, uh, genetically modified organism actually dies during the fermentation process that is often part of uh, of synthetic biology, where it's sort of like bre- brewing beer, that there's uh, a, a gene that's inserted into a yeast bacteria or algae cell, and it, it, it ferment- ferments, and then it, it kind of dies and moves on and leaving this new product behind. So, for example, um, the Impossible Burger, right, which is mm-hmm. getting a lot of, uh, of uh, just fanfare and, and uptake on Wall Street... Um, mm-hmm. It contains an engineered heme. It's called. It's a protein mm-hmm. originally derived from soy plant roots that give it the look and feel of meat. That's a synthetic biology product. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. and there's a number of others. And of course, that stands to supplant uh, uh, animal beef and and other animal products and potentially make uh, you know high quality protein available. Uh, to those who don't have access to animal products. There's a you know great disruptive potential here. How do we think about that? Is that the same as GMO corn? And so this is a really interesting area, and I would really appreciate that Meg took this on and asked and partly answered at least some of the big questions, but definitely raised some of those concerns and uh, health, and as you said before, the social impacts of some of these things. So great piece. Uh, really yep. appreciate that. She took that on.
1: Yeah, it's great to have this update, and I, I'm just gonna I'm gonna throw a, a very interesting statistic out that I just discovered. A totally unrelated story, Joel, that I did this week talking about Food Maven. So, Food Maven is is a a company that has um, an, an online marketplace, but also the logistics to help uh, handle food waste. Right, so they're helping people with oversupplies of of various items and grocery stores and how they get to, you know, take this this food and get it somewhere where it can be consumed. And one of the things that fascinated me was what um, the CEO told me that half of the food waste that they're dealing with, half is protein. It's partly because of uh, the different regulations regarding meat. So for example, if you sell something as a certain cut, you can't change that unless you have a you know, you can't go and grind that unless you have the the right um, certifications and licenses to do so. Um, and also, if you freeze something that's quote uh, you know organic or fresh, then you can't you can't represent it as fresh anymore. And so there, there's interest. That was just an int- intriguing, uh, like I said, a completely separate topic, but but interesting in, in the in the in the context of this protein debate that we're having: plant based proteins versus meats and so forth. And and the the impact. So just kind of a neat um, statistic to think about when um, considering this synthetic biology impact as well.
0: Yeah. And before we move on from the field of food, I want to make sure to give a shout out to our summer editorial intern, Cyan Zhang, who uh, is here from the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern University, who wrote her first piece for us this week uh, on a company called LeanPath, which is dealing with food waste in some high-tech ways. Uh, Great piece. I encourage you to read it. And uh, thank you, Cyan. So what's next, Heather?
1: So next is, I I just, (laughs) I I love uh, Catherine. Our our editor at large, Catherine Winkler, had uh, one of her pieces in this week. And um, I just love Catherine because she's just, you know, she's very refreshingly straightforward. <laughs> and she always comes up with these great Im- images. And the piece that she wrote this week is overdriving your headlights on climate risk. And that just <laughs> I thought as someone who's whose eyes are aging, <laughs> and I, I just I had the image of that just um, just really uh, resonated for me because you know when you when you when you're looking ahead, you've always got to look ahead of your headlights, make sure you can break. Before your headlights and so forth. I just I thought that was just such a wonderful image and and, um, way of thinking about how to discuss risk within a company. You know, we we, we've talked before about how uh, risk management teams within corporations are starting to really understand. You know, think about not I wouldn't say necessarily understand, but they're thinking about climate risks in a different way, and they're looking. Ahead a little bit more than they have, um, but you know, traditionally speaking, there's been sort of a frustrate, um, a reluctance, if you will, to look beyond two or three years within a company. So we, we we talk about the short term expectations of Wall Street, and and companies tend to to think very short term. And what's what what can I optimize in this next cycle and quarter and a couple years out? And it's very difficult to get organizations thinking in sort of the long term frame that is required for for handling climate risk so this is just one wonderful way of uh framing the issue and uh thinking about maybe how to discuss it within your own, own organization it's one of those every time i every time someone suggests a way to talk about something that's that's more straightforward or simpler or whatever i just i i love hearing about it because as you know we we all hear th- hear messages in different ways and the more ways different ways that that the sustainability professionals can talk about something, I think, the better, because what will resonate with one person might not resonate with another, but, you know, you might finally get through to someone who's been reluctant to think about something. So, I it's just, it just struck me as a, as a, a different way to, to think about discussing climate risk. So, Thanks,
0: Catherine. Yeah, it's not for nothing that Catherine's column is called "Getting Real," um, <laughs> and and this yeah. is and she does get real. And and I think the, just one little coded to this, um, our colleague John Davies, who uh, runs the GreenBiz Executive Network, is has long said that the the job of a chief sustainability officer is really chief translation officer, and and that's uh, sort of at the heart of what Catherine's writing about here is how. Do sustainability professionals commune um, in in a certain sense uh, communicate certainly with their risk departments? You know, I suspect, and, and I actually know this is true in, in in some cases, that that the sustainability folks and the risk folks don't even define risk in the same way. And that obviously creates the conditions for, you know. Dysfunction, or at least a, a not very helpful conversation between the two when they talk about what is the risk of us doing something or not doing something when it comes to climate change or or any other environmental or social issue that that, that comes along. And I think that this illuminates uh, <laughs> in the headlights uh, the 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 challenges here and a little bit of how Catherine dealt with it when she was a CSO at the tech company EMC. So. Good on you, Catherine. Thanks for bringing this to light.
1: Thank you. And I I just, I think we're going to go to the last set of stories now on deforestation. Lots of really good research out in the last couple of weeks on this issue. And uh, it's one of these concerning things, right? We, we've been talking for years, years and years and years and years, and companies have been promising for years and years and years to deal with deforestation and to manage their risks related to that. But lo and behold, People aren't really doing what they need to do. So, Joel, tell, tell me a little bit about the research that you wrote about this
0: yeah, week. Yeah, there's a piece I did for uh, my Monday Green Buzz newsletter. And um, a lot of it uh, homes in on a uh, study that came out of CDP uh, that basically said that companies aren't doing a very good job of, of disclosing and providing transparency on on deforestation this is at least from the largest brands in the world and for all the talk about zero deforestation or zero net deforestation all those terms 70 percent of companies failed to report critical forest related information requested by shareholders or or purchasing or customers basically Uh, and more than 350 companies uh, consistently failed to report over the past three years so they said, CDP said that despite global commitments and mounting public pressure, companies are still unaware of mm-hmm. deforestation risk or if they're aware mm-hmm. of it, they're not saying so. Um, and so this is a problem. And, and there's a lot of this is in what's called soft commodities, things like cocoa and coffee and corn and livestock, palm trees, things where uh, commodities that are grown, not mined and that are tr- traded on futures and op- options exchanges. We've been ta- hearing about soy and palm oil concerns and the deforestation in the Amazon uh, for for years. But I, I guess just what's interesting here is that we're, we're now at a point on climate change where uh, the role of forestry is really coming into relief and understanding that it's not just a a nice thing to do to plant a tree, let alone hug it, <laughs> but also <laughs> but this is a really critical part of of sequestering greenhouse gases, and it's not just a, a nice thing to do. it's, it's critical. And, um, and in that criticality is there uh, are companies doing enough? And I think the answer here is pretty. Well, clear cut. The answer is no.
1: <laughs> oh Joel. Uh, good pun. but uh, yeah I, I, yes, one of the things that really struck me was that the interrelation of this, right? If you go back to the carbon removal, debate and discussion that we're having, um, this is very much related to that because land use and forests and so forth are obviously huge part of drawing down the carbon that's in the atmosphere already. And so acting on this is more important than ever. And secondarily, if you think about the food waste problem, like if we're not using the food that's being grown on the land that we already have, why are we taking more land to grow more food? Or to grow to raise livestock, we need to be better using the land that we have already, um, and and thinking about okay, is this is this the right use for this? Is this should this be agriculture? Should we be replanting trees and so forth? So uh, there's it's it's just another example of and how everything is so interrelated, and so I think it's no it's no surprise that this is coming into more relief and that we're 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 seeing if you will, the for the forest for the trees because it, it's so related to those other two issues and, and it is maybe the next the next real landscape of where we need to be going with, with action. So fingers crossed that people will be paying attention to this.
0: This week, we ran a piece by Green Biz contributor Sue Liebig about Cool Block, an organization whose mission is to change the game on climate one block at a time. Sue serves as Cool Block's platform director, and she's here with me now. Hey, Sue. Hey, Joel. So, give me the elevator pitch. What is Cool Block?
2: So, Cool Block is this radical program that allows neighbors to come together and to take action together around resiliency. Planet friendliness, low carbon living, water stewardship, and livability enhancement, and to do it in a way that they enjoy and that builds, rebuilds the social fabric on the block that our culture has lost in this global time.
0: So these are literally people who live on the same block. They come together, and what, what do they do?
2: They get, they do a program. They meet every f- couple of weeks. And they go through a structured program. Within the program, there's lots of choices. So they go through a couple of uh, weeks of looking at resiliency. They go through several weeks of looking at low-carbon living and retro retrofits of their homes, if they have the power to do that. They spend a couple of weeks on uh, water stewardship, and then they get into livability issues, which is things like addressing safety, addressing uh, social activity, ass- addressing cleanliness on the street, addressing uh, resource sharing um, in the immediate community. You know, knocking on the door for a tool instead of um, necessarily going to the store and buying a new one. So that is what happens actually, and then the group continues to meet at whatever pace they like, and whatever pace they like, they are already connected. They are a changed they are a changed community. They're a community.
0: So you have a background in organizational development and psychology and a number of other things that you bring to this beyond your tech chops and sustainability uh, knowledge. Um, what's going on here from a sort of a personal basis that makes this work?
2: Personally, what Coolblock ends up doing is integrating a whole lot of things. Very personally, it integrates, as you just described me, all of the different uh, disciplines that I work in, so it's a very integrative role. But the platform itself is designed to be an integrative platform for everyone who participates in it. One level of integration is that the different themes I described are actually the... Um, literal integration of five different proven programs that have been developed over the years and tested over the years by the Empowerment Institute and by its creator, David Gershon. So it is the integration of those programs. The platform integrates not only neighbors on a block, but those blocks into their community and those actions into the local resources, city policy and programs, local nonprofits, local businesses that are offering things that enable people to take these actions successfully. And so it's really activating the community around these themes and doing it in a way that builds people's quality of life at the same time.
0: So when this really works, when this is successful, what's the story that these neighbors get to tell?
2: They get to tell a a bigger story than they realize now. Um, We are currently at the stage of proving out the program so that we can take it to scale. But the big story that we are building here is that by activating the citizenry and by connecting them with local government, local business, and business at large and by having these multiple sectors operate seeing each other and operating in some kind of coordinated fashion in some kind of concert working on this together so we can all see that each what each other is doing we believe that that will be the way that we become not only cool cities but ultimately carbon-neutral cities. So we are on a path to carbon-neutral cities and to facilitating that process, starting on the ground, one block at a time.
0: So where are some of these blocks now? Where is this actually being implemented?
2: So we did small, successful pilots in Palo Alto, Los Angeles and San Francisco. We have done some additional pilots and are continuing to do pilots around particular configurations to test out certain things in Palo Alto. Palo Alto has taken this this up with us in a very partnered way. We have done some work with um, the University of California in Santa Barbara with a student community there that we plan to take forward. And we have other cities in um, Southern California L.A., Santa Barbara, others that want to move forward with us. We also have people asking us every day whenever they learn about it. They say, can we do it here? We currently are pushing back on that because we're focusing on California. We're focusing on getting ready to scale effectively and to scale in about five cool cities on a path to then opening it up to any California city that has a climate action plan to become a cool city and get on a path to carbon neutrality. Still, we have a few people outside of California that just we can't resist and we're, we're going to be supporting some pilots in neighborhoods outside of California as well.
0: So this is a way for cities that have committed to climate action or climate neutrality to implement those at the, at the household level.
2: Absolutely. This is the way to operationalize all your good ideas and to connect everything that you're doing structurally at a local government level and in your uh, local economy and connect that with your citizenry so that you are all activating each other and empowering each other to be successful. Cool. <laughs> I think so.
0: Yeah. Sue Liebeck is platform director at CoolBlock. You can learn more at coolblock.org. Thanks, Sue.
2: Thank you, Joel.
0: And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll learn more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned this week. While you're there, check out our other podcast, Center Stage the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events our email is 350 at greenbiz.com heather will be back next week but as she said i'll be traveling so katie fahrenbacher will be sitting in as co-host that'll be fun uh, until next week from all of us here at GreenBiz group i'm joel mccower thanks so much for tuning in